the world was changing. Mm -hmm. And they saw the world invading the church. So instead of the church invading the world, which is what we've been called to do, yeah. they built walls. So I had this grown man with his arm around me, comforting me, speaking life into me. And I, I walked away from that stunned. Hey there, I'm Matthew Foley and this is ISO Insights, where God's truth grows in the midst of current culture, renewing the mind and spirit. So I, so I don't know that they weren't doing exactly what God wanted them to do yeah. for that era of time. Now you have to also understand the world was changing mm -hmm. and they saw the world invading the church. So instead of the church invading the world, which is what we've been called to do, yeah. they built walls and they kept the world out wow. of, the, of the church. So they wanted this distinguish, this, this, they wanted to be distinguished from the world even if you walked into a grocery store, the women had extremely long hair, no makeup, you know, dresses down to their ankles. Uh, the guys had their long sleeves mm -hmm. on and buttoned up to the top. And I mean, what I'm wearing right now would not have been acceptable in those circles. Wow. Yeah, you couldn't wear the color red. Um, there were ties and no ties groups. And now it's mask <laughs> and no mask, but it was ties and no ties in those days. <laughs> Some groups thought a tie was, was outward adornment. Really? Yeah, it served no purpose other than pride. Man, that's so different from today. Yeah, so, so you can't wear a tie. And, and then the other ones thought that if you didn't wear a tie, that you were not, um, you were not giving God your best. best. Yeah. So they thought that you were underdressed without a tie and you were slacking on God. You were, you were treating God too casual. The other group thought that if you wore a tie, that you were that you were puffed up and pride filled, mm -hmm. and it's, and if you wore a red tie, you had already backslidden. <laughs> oh my goodness! Even though it's the blood of Jesus, there was those kind of rules that got so far out of hand. Wow! That after a while, as a kid, I was just thoroughly confused by all of it, and so I had to go on my own journey. So when God called me to preach in the bottom of that wreck, I. Um, you know, I had to go on my own journey with God and figure out what that looked like. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's when I started my early morning prayer life. Um, I climbed a mountain. Uh, all the people around there called it Brian's Mountain and um, because I would climb that mountain and pray every day. And they could hear me. I didn't know anyone could hear me. Wow. But I guess in those, those mm -hmm. uh, hollers and those, those valleys coming down that mountainside, it just... the your voice carries yeah. all those people in their cabins, their cottages were hearing your voice cry out. There Farmers anyway. in their field, yeah. you know, milking cows. <laughs> they could hear me. So at 17, I just, I went up there and I, I took a chainsaw with me. I cut down a tree, made a pulpit out of it. And I take my Bible up there and practice preaching and uh, made an altar up there. And I mm. practiced and while I didn't practice, I prayed. And that's what I had to do to start finding God on my own. I, I'll never forget when I decided to go, go to college and in that world that was taboo yeah so in that the world i was in that that extreme holiness side of pentecostalism which all of pentecostalism wasn't that way my wife grew up in the church of god but she didn't have mm -hmm. any of those experiences really? it was just that little segment that little genre of, of yeah. holiness movement that that we were that we were caught up in and um so I'll never forget when I decided to go to college, went to Lee College, which is now Lee University, and everyone shunned me for it. Really? Why yeah. was that? Because it's going to change you. 
it's going to, all you need is God and your Bible and your mm -hmm. prayer life. What's wrong with this life? They thought you're going to leave us and never come back. Um, things like you're going to get too big for your britches, little statements like that. And so for a long time, when I would come back from college, it was not celebrated. Man. And so, um, you know, you can, out in that culture, you could be, you could, you know, chew somebody out and give them a piece of your mind and get celebrated. Really? But, but you could ace uh, a thesis paper and no one paid yeah. attention to it. That, that's, that's so interesting. So you celebrated in silence. There was like, a, there's just been, uh, I hate to say studies, you know, right in the middle when you're talking about, you know, no. in that culture, they can't stand people that are too uh, in their heads. Yeah, <laughs> but they thought say, it would mess you up, yeah. There's uh, studies on sociology. I can't remember what the name of the book is, but this guy just ran, uh, ran I think, in the state that he uh, came from for government. It might be Ohio, it might be Kentucky. But he wrote this book about hillbilly culture in the Appalachians yeah. and how it, it has a lot of similarities to lower income cultures where in, in lower income areas where people really rely on each other, their neighbors and family, yep. there's this, whenever somebody tries to go up into education and yep. move on from that kind of bracket, people get very threatened and defensive about it. Yeah, they feel rejected. Yeah. It, it feels like you're leaving the community. Wow. And so, and it feels like the community just lost one, you know, like, like they're not going to be as strong as they were. Man. And so in my church... Um, I was the bass guitar player. I played the organ at the church. <laughs> I played the bass guitar. I led worship. Wow. I taught a Sunday school class, and I was I was over the youth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so when I walked away, and that little small country church, which I love that church, I love those people. Um, I w I really wasn't walking away from them. I grieved them because they were precious. Yeah. The people were beautiful people, and. Um, you know, but when I walked away, there were probably six or eight gaps left. There were six or eight empty roles. And way out in the country, you don't have a lot of people visiting. So yeah. you never knew if someone was going to come in to fill up those slots or not, you know, those those empty positions. Wow. And so, so they did see it as me leaving them. Like my wife, she was the only piano player at her church. Mm -hmm. So when she went away to college, they had no music. Their church had really? to sing a cappello, and then there was this older woman, Sister Cora was her name, that was in her 80s, that finally started playing again, and she could only play certain hymns, and so it limited. They learned to love it. <laughs> I guess they so. learned to love those five hymns. And so, you know, they they didn't want her to go away to college. Now her parents did, but her church wow. did not. Did it take a lot of faith? to move on to college from the life you'd known? Or was it like, I'm ready to try something new? I think it was more of, I'm ready to try something new. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't sure how I was going to do it because we had no money. I was working in, um, so Cosby is about 20 miles from Gatlinburg. And so I was working minimum wage jobs wow. in Gatlinburg, Tennessee as a 18 year old. Wow. So yeah, I was- It's not far I, from here either. No, no it's not. So I'd done full circle from Georgia back to Tennessee at that time. Dad, wherever Dad's ministry went, it's where we went. I uh, went to 18 schools before I ever graduated, so we moved a lot. Mm. And so, um, so when I when I finally got up the nerve to go to college and made that decision, a tomato farmer who was who was a school teacher, full time school teacher, who who farmed tomatoes in the summertime. 
Yeah. He took $1,000 from his crop, from his tomato crop. And I know this guy didn't make a lot of money. And his wife had never had any children. And they came to me and they said, we want to bless you with this scholarship money to help you go to college. Wow. And it was the only money that I received. Huh. And so I had $1,000 from a tomato farmer who was a high school teacher who saw the value in education. He, he did attend my church, by the way. Wow. And, um, and then I came here. I didn't even understand Pell Grants. I didn't understand. I came, I came on campus. They said, how are you going to pay for it? I said, I need to talk to someone. <laughs> and they sent me into the student aid office, so I worked. You know, I was, mm -hmm. the, I was the college student that was in the kitchen. Man. You know, I was washing the dishes and um, sweeping the floors and taking out the garbage. That was me. Mm -hmm. And then I was preaching on the weekend and wow. singing in chapel and all those things I did back in the day. And then the rest of it was, you know, they helped me get government grants. The school, Lee, Lee um, College, helped me fill out my paperwork because I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> so I got a TSAC. I got a, like a Tennessee student assistant loan, and I got a Pell Grant, and all of that wow. had to pay back, obviously, but so later on. You just worked, worked, worked through your college experience. I and know. that was no stretch for me. I was used to working. Well, it sounds like kind of just picked up where you left off <laughs> really as soon as you got to college. It was just life. Yeah. You know? And how did you meet your wife, Faith? Oh, wow. Faith. Uh, best thing ever happened to me, by mm -hmm. the way. Um, so Faith uh, and I met an Old Testament survey for the first time. So uh, I didn't know her her mm. name was, I didn't even know her name was Faith. I'll, I was kind of the class clown. Really? Yeah. I not imagine. I dealt with my, I dealt with my struggles in life through humor. Yeah. So my whole life growing up, I was the guy that made people laugh. And I was, oh, I, you know, this is the, this is the wild thing about being me is that I did not have it easy, but I always had a positive attitude. I always had a good outlook on life. Was that just like how God made you from the start? Or? That's all I can guess, yeah. Okay, yeah. Or I, I didn't want to get sucked in. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get pulled into the vortex of negativity and wow. all of that. So I, I just knew there was something better, so I just chose to believe. So it's more of a, a fight to be positive than it is to, this is just my natural default, is I'm going to choose to be this way. I don't know if it was a fight, but it was a choice. Okay. Once I, I, I remember saying, I, was, I think I must have been about 12 years old, and I said out loud, this was such a distinct defining moment for me, I don't like these people, I don't want to be like them. Wow. And, and that didn't mean everybody in my world, but it meant the people that were controlling and mm. the ones that were God's going to get you for that crowd. And, oh. I, and I said, I'm not going to be like them. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to be like my dad. Mm -hmm. I love my dad, but I didn't want to be like him. And um, I just didn't want to be like the leaders in my church. And so I remember at about 12 years old, I, I couldn't find anyone I wanted to be like. That was my problem. That's wild that, that God... I, I'm going to attribute it to God because it's wild for a young person at 12 years old to be able to look around every influence in their life and say, no, 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 all the way down the list because that's your whole world. Yeah. But to just know there's something better than this. Yeah, there was a missionary <clears throat> that there was a missionary that came to um, our church and he was the most loving man I'd ever met. 
And so I knew there was a difference. And he became my pen pal. And so he was in, he was in India, which started my love for missions. And he and I wrote each other. I would write him a letter, and about two or three months later, I'd get another one back. Mm -hmm. And so I'd never met anyone that was so filled with the love of God before. And I thought, okay, there is a difference. There, it's out there. Mm -hmm. I, remember, I remember going to camp meeting one time. It must have been about 14. And um, in my church, you know, to go to the altar, first of all, meant that you had done something wrong and, and, or something was wrong with you. Wow. And so the, the old saints wouldn't go. Mm -hmm. They would go and pray for people. And then when you get to the altar, they'd work you over, man. I mean, it was like shaking you. Oh, and, man. And they'd do this and this the whole time they were praying for you and things like that. They'd be tapping. Uh, why, why would they do that? Why would they like be tapping your face? And I have no idea, things? but that's what <laughs> they did. At ISO, we always strive to provide discounts and incentives for our students. Now. We're thrilled to announce our best value ever, the ISO All Access Pass. For just $99 per month, any student can access our entire learning platform. An ever-expanding library of fascinating, groundbreaking teaching at your fingertips for the average price of just one ISO course. There has never been such a prime opportunity to pursue your biblical education. Students in many traditional schools pay $100 to learn every day for every single course. With the All Access Pass, that amount gives you access to our entire course catalog. At ISO, you can learn from world-class teachers on a wide variety of subjects, all at your own pace. With the subscription-based model of the All Access Pass, there are no obligations to put yourself in debt for decades. If you're hungry to learn about the Word, there's never been a better value. That's countless hours of teaching and materials with no limit on how much you can learn. Now, more than ever, ISO is excited to connect the word with the world. Go to isow.org to get started with the All Access Pass today. So I was at camp meeting and I went, to, I went up to the altar one time as a teenager because, you know, teenagers always have sex on their mind and, mm -hmm. you know, all that. At least that's what they're told. <laughs> so 14, they were probably right. And so I went to the altar to confess. And there was a very loving man. Uh, his name was Robert Herring. He was a pastor uh, there in Georgia. And I'd never had anybody pray for me like this. He went up to the altar. And I was ready for the royal treatment, right? So this is like, he's a missionary. He's going to be like them, but times two. Well, <laughs> this wasn't the missionary. This was actually oh, a this pastor. Is, me, this is the pastor. So the missionary's name was, was um, Harold. And so this guy, this guy's name was Robert Herring. And so he came up to me and put his arm around me and began to pray this gentle prayer, asked me my name, wow. which I thought, wow, my name is Brian. God, I want you to touch Brian's life. And he prayed the most gentle prayer I'd never had. Even my dad wasn't like that. You know, my dad was pretty rough on us. Mm -hmm. So I had this grown man with his arm around me, comforting me, speaking life into me. And I, I walked away from that stunned. I walked away from that stunned. That gentle prayer. I'd never had that before. Wow. I didn't even know it existed. So you're talking about the love of God. It, it, it affected me so much that I thought, okay, there is a different way of life and I'm going to mm. find it. So, and I will tell you, I, I had some loving people in my life, so it wasn't that, but not all of them were saved, but they were loving. Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. some of the people that should have been the most loving, that were spirit-filled, were the least loving. Most spiritual, technically, in their minds, wow. but least loving. But I had loving people in my life, and I knew there was a difference. So I just wanted to be different from that. Man. So let me take this fast forward. Robert Herring's wife passes away years later. I, don't, I didn't know her, but he marries this girl named Lisa and Lisa Herring. And so I run into them a couple of times. He does not know this story of how he changed my life until I hired Lisa Herring as a writer at ISO. Really? Lisa Herring is one of our writers at ISO. Wow. And I got to hire <laughs> the man's wife, and he's, he's now way in his 80s, and, uh, and, and he married a much younger lady. Mm-hmm. I think she's 30 years younger than him. And so when we hired her, I've, I finally had the opportunity to tell Robert that story for the very first time. And he's still that way. Man. He's still one of the most gentle giants you'll ever meet. Wow. Yeah. My word. So all of that made me want to be someone else. It made me want to be someone different. I wanted to discover that side of God. And so I think that yeah. that put me on a good journey. So when I came to Lee, I, I found a lot of people to help me. I had some great professors in those days. Mm-hmm. And that started me on a different journey. And I saw preaching differently. I, saw, I learned things from the scriptures that I didn't know. So you saw a whole new, uh, I would guess, you saw a whole new side, the Pentecostalism, yes. than the kind of harsh holiness movement that yes. you were used to. So, so you were asking about faith. I think that's mm-hmm. how we got on this yeah. subject. So I was the class clown. I think that's how I got <laughs> off track telling you that yeah. that's how I mask things with humor. But um, anyway, faith, uh, a guy named Murray Hand uh, knew her from South Georgia, and I would make uh, you know, comments and try to be funny in class. Mm-hmm. And she would laugh so loud. She still does. And she just would laugh so loud. It would kind of take over the room. She caught your attention. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. I got to, this girl has the best personality. So Perry Stone was actually preaching a revival in Daisy, uh, Tennessee. Oh, yes. And uh-huh. so this was a, a revival that went 12 weeks. So it's, you know, it's one mm-hmm. of those historical revivals that are people still talk about to this day. Well, a lot of Lee students were going over to it. And one of the things that I did all through college was sing. I was a musician and a singer. Mm-hmm. So I would sing in chapel a lot. And, you know, I did solos and trios, numbers and duets, whatever they need me to do in chapel. So remember, Lee College was 800 students then. It yeah. was not the Lee University that you've known. And so um, they asked me to come over and sing at that revival. So I was just going to sing. So this guy named Kerry mm-hmm. Stuttered was a great keyboard player, piano player. So he was going to meet me there. We were going to go over a song, and I was going to sing it that night before Perry preached. And um, I, walk in the, I walk in the church there at the Daisy Church of God or whatever it was called, and I'm in the lobby, and I hear someone playing the piano. And I think it's Kerry because there aren't very many people that can play as good as he can. I mean, uh-huh. he, was, he was phenomenal. And so when I'm hearing him play, I look up to God in the lobby and I said, now, God, why can't I find somebody as funny or someone with a personality like Faith Carlton? That was was her maiden name. Why can't I find somebody with a personality like Faith Carlton who can play the piano like that? 
And I turn the corner thinking that I'm going to there to meet Carrie Stuttered on the piano, and it's Faith. My word. She's actually playing the piano <laughs> for someone else. They got there before us. Mm. And I couldn't believe she could play as good as Carrie. And she was um, she was an amazing keyboard player. I had no idea that she sang or played or anything. And then I thought, okay, I've got to get to know this girl. <laughs> said, fair enough, Lord. Fair yeah, enough. that's right. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> I mean, that's a real quick response. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I thought, i got to get to know her. So I asked her out. Uh, the next night, she was already committed, riding with you. someone else. So she said, I wish I could, but I can't. So I just didn't give up. Mm-hmm. We had pay phones back then, no cell phones, pay yeah. phones. So I'd go to the pay phone in my dorm hallway and call the pay phone in her dorm hallway. Whoever answered it, you had to wait till <laughs> someone answered it. They would go get them out pay, of their room yeah. and bring them to the pay phone. And pay phones only lasted for like five minutes or maybe three Ooh, minutes. So they, they had, had to run. hurry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that was what it looked like. She said yes, and we took our first date and been together ever since. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, <clears throat> uh, I know that you guys you got married both at 21. I was 20, she was 21. Okay. Yeah. I got you. And uh, at that time, now, did you start pastoring pretty quickly right after that? Well, um, so we, we planted our first church uh, before we got married. Okay. So I was a Lee student. And um, they needed a church in Knoxville. Uh, they wanted to plant a new church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, here's the whole story. There was a very wealthy man wanted to plant mm-hmm. a church. And, um, you know, he was a businessman, but he, but he was also a preacher. And so he, stood, he, he got his employees together and put this little chapel together in, in, in one of the buildings he owned. And he got up to preach his first sermon, had a heart attack, and died. Wow. Yeah, and his first sermon. And his wife was so committed to planting that church in his name because that was his dream mm-hmm. and that was the last thing he did that they just started putting out an APB for anyone who could preach. Well, my roommate, Randy Jenkins' father, was a good friend of this guy. And he mm-hmm. said, they're just looking for a preacher to come up and preach. You can do that. So Randy <laughs> said, you want to go up and preach for them on the weekends? You can preach. And I didn't have a job. Really? And he said, they're going to pay you $100 a week. And you're like, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, you know, 100 bucks a week, which back then could go a lot further than it could now. But so I said, you know what? I need the experience. I need a place to preach. So I went up and started preaching there. And it was a little gift shop. Mm-hmm. And there might have been 20 people there. I, I stayed there for about a year. Mm-hmm. We were up to like 85, 90 people that it started coming to that little storefront, basically. And um, so Faith and I got married while we were planting that church. My. So what we would do every week is the lady, the lady who owned, uh, who was his wife, they owned a hotel. And she said, we have a restaurant in the hotel. You bring as many Lee students as you want every week. We'll feed them and put them up in rooms. So I would call them ahead of time and tell them how many rooms we wanted, and we would bring Lee kids every week. Was that just to be nice, or were they wouldn't fill oh, the no, church? Oh no, they up? wanted to. They wanted to help us. They wanted help planting the church because we would you. bring singers. Yeah. Of course, you know, with Faith on the piano, I was on the bass, and and then we would bring several singers with us. I mean, this little church plant had had it going on <laughs> in the music department. So every week, man, people would come out. It was like a bunch of college kids planting a church. But the people that were coming were very wealthy. Wow. Because that's the friendships that 
that were in this family. It must have been a sight to see for anybody visiting. Oh, man. So they gave us a little pay increase. And after about a year, um, I was told not by them, but by, you know, the Church of God, you know, this church is, is well established and you need to make a decision if you want to be a full-time pastor, a full-time student. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't want to, I want to be both. They said, well, we think that this church needs to go in a little different direction. So I said, okay, then I want to finish my education. So I went back to, to Lee and gave huh. it up. And, you know, faith started working at Kmart. <laughs> By this time we'd gotten married. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, just a we had to have support, and so I was working odd jobs, and she was working at Kmart, which is no longer here, and uh, that's how we support ourselves in the in the Man. very beginning. And that church is still in existence; it runs about 500 people today, and did up you, in Knoxville. That's why I know you've told me about uh, that church is still in existence to this day, still kicking. Yep. And the way you make it sound when you were a young man was that the. The denomination that you were in, the Church of God, you know, it had so much of a structure or a support system for young ministers. I think that's uh, very interesting. And the reason I'm bringing this up is just a quick tangent here. There's so much that's happening in the church today. Many of the problems, I personally think, that are cropping up are related to a lack of... Uh, Checks and balances is one way to say it, but another way to say it is relationships and spiritual mentors and yeah. parents that are able to look into a younger person and say, hey, I see some mistakes with the trajectory that you're headed, that you're headed yeah. towards. Uh, and it seems like you had so many people in your life when you were a young man that were able to be that voice of reason for you. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said relationships, because structures never support people. It's only the people that manage the structures mm. that do it. Systems fail every day. Every system fails, but the people that run the systems are the ones that make the difference. So I think that the Lord put the people in my life that I needed at the time I needed them. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the reason that I'm so intentional now about things like that. You know, if a young person wants to talk to me, I just make the time. I, it doesn't mean I have the time, I make the time. I. You know, you can count how many times I've ever said no to mm -hmm. a conversation. And that, and I do that with anyone who needs a conversation like that, especially if they're a younger person. Um, I know what a difference it made in my life to have some, some um, not just powerful mentors, but caring mentors, people that could speak wisdom into me. And, you know, if you could see the mess I was in when God called me to preach at 17, you know, my theology was really messed up. My attitude was, I don't like the church. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like the church. I don't know what I want to be, but I just know I don't want what I don't want to be. But I knew there was something out there. And the Lord, you know, took me, he, he put the right people in my life when I needed them. Wow. And he still does. Hmm. You know, that's the thing. I still have people in my life like that now. And I want to be that person for other people now. So yeah. I've transitioned from a son to a father. And so now wow. I'm the spiritual father. And so I always have time for sons and daughters. You know, I think that that's going to be uh, very, very important with our transition into this next episode that we're doing. But a lot of these, I'm seeing a lot of things that you're talking about in your early life where 
the full maturation, like the, the, the full circle of those things, to give what you've received or to, to supply what you lacked yeah. when you were a young person, seeing needs but also having a sense of responsibility. I can see these things and the, the goals of ISO, where it's trying to head. Um, I know Matt Hare and I talked about a lot of the change in culture that's going on. Uh, but one of the, bit, the questions was, how can we proactively figure out the problems that are happening in the church right now? How do we answer what a lot of young people are lacking? Yeah. And when you're talking about your life, relationships, being able to have real relationships. Yes. Ones that are corrective, not just supportive. Yes. Those, that seems to be a, a huge thing in the church. And I, th I think you have to have a loving relationship to have a corrective relationship. Mm. You know, my, I, I've mentioned several times in this, um, this episode that you know, I didn't want to be like my dad, but I do love my dad and my dad loves me. I didn't want to be what maybe God required him to be at that time. Mm -hmm. The thing about dad was that dad um, did what he thought was right. And he was trying to please God and, and he taught me that. So I'm trying to please God. And I realized that his generation had a different calling than mine. But my generation has a calling to raise up another generation because I believe this is most likely the last generation wow. before yeah. the coming of the Lord. So my dad's generation felt like they had to toe the line because the world was changing. Mm. So that made them tough. And I respect him for that. Even though I didn't want to be like that, I, re I understand why he had to be that way. And I respect him for that. But my generation has to raise up another generation in order to fulfill prophecy for the last days. So wow. I, I'm a part of the generation where the hearts of the fathers have been turned to the sons. Spirit of Elijah. That's right. Wow. These are the days of Elijah. Man, I, I can see uh, when we talk about people, the mindset of the believers and Christians in the early 1900s in the U.S., yep. it was them struggling to keep the world from becoming non-Christian. Yeah. And now, at the end of the 1900s, the church has given up the battle of trying to make the world become Christian again, and now is trying to keep itself near God, to, yeah. to remain a, a city set on a hill, a light to the world. If we want the world to be Christian, we have to be Christian first. Wow. And the light has to be seen. If we're not the light of the world, the light goes out. So I think that sometimes our efforts were in vain. We were trying to blend too much. I think that's one of the things that the mega churches, you know, I was a mega church pastor for many years. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's one, of the, that's one of the failures of the mega church is that we became too secular, N not necessarily my church, but a lot of them have become so secular, trying to blend, trying to please, trying to, you know, give them... Um, microwave sermons yeah. and and sweet delights mm -hmm. as opposed to the disciplines and mm -hmm. that that are required to follow Christ and so I think that um, one of the things that we have to do now is we have to quit worrying about how we're going to blend and get the world to accept us and just wow. let them see the difference in us let them see the Christ in us yeah. Gandhi said okay <laughs> this is Gandhi that he said if the world could meet the Christ of the Christians instead of the Christians of the Christ, 
perhaps the whole world would accept him. Hmm. So he saw, he saw that Christ was different from what Christians had become. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. We have to let yeah. Christ, we have to let Christ live in us again. Well, there you have it. You know, in, next, in the next episode coming up, we're going to be talking about a little bit more about Dr. Cutshaw's life story, but we're also going to be talking about how he came into Twin Rivers, the experiences he saw and seeing the growth there and how that changed his walk with the Lord and what God was doing in his life. Well, then we're going to talk about a story that actually caused him and his wife to leave everything behind that they had known and move on to ISO. And we'll be finishing off with the vision that Dr. Cutshaw has for uh, ISO, where he feels like God's doing in the world and where God's taking the church in the world. So we'll see you next episode.